1 Corinthians last week, and will continue in future weeks, to poignantly remind us there's never been a perfect church. Never. Because when you put sinners into the same room, things always get messy. Things always get complicated. And so we saw last week, uh, as we opened 1 Corinthians, that even a few decades after the Son of God himself walking on the earth, his bride, the church, was already beginning to struggle, was already beginning to meander off course, was already beginning to get bogged down with scandals and division and mess. And again, this is not to, to excuse those things or to justify those things, but it perhaps is a reminder for us to, to taper our expectations when we think of church, to taper them just a bit and realize again that we are sinners together but we are being redeemed and reshaped according to the image of our Savior. And so last week in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in the first half, we saw that though our lives and our church are imperfect, we saw three things. We saw that we belong, each of us, to the perfect one. We're imperfect, our lives are imperfect, but we belong to the perfect one. And that perfect one has perfectly provided for us. He's given us everything we need for life and and for godliness. And then finally, we saw that because of that provision, we are then called to a unity of purpose. We must put aside differences. We must put aside secondary preferences and be united in our singular purpose, which is to see the gospel of Jesus Christ take root in our lives and in the lives of others. And so all that then brings us to our text this morning, which is the second half of 1 Corinthians 1. And it begins in verse 18. So using your bulletin or your own Bible, follow along with me. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. It says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Heavenly Father, Again, we thank you for this time together. And we thank you now for the gift and the blessing of your word. And Father, we pray that in its reading and in its exposition, that you would send your spirit to be our teacher. 
that you would send your spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds that in the written word, we would see the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, and see him high and lifted up. In his name we pray, amen. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, calls us to embrace in this passage three realities of our faith. Three realities of our faith. The first is this. We have a message that is polarizing, yet providential. We have a message that is polarizing, yet providential. Secondly, we have a God that is a savior, but also a stumbling block. A God who is a savior, yet also a stumbling block. And then thirdly, we have an identity as Christians that is humbling. We have an identity as Christians that is humbling. So let's look at those in turn. The first is found in verses 18 through 20, those first couple verses. We have a message that is polarizing, yet providential. One of the things that I love most about children, and you know mine uh, are in this age, they're, they're four and six respectively, so they are in this, this sweet spot of what I'm about to talk about. One of the things I love about children, though, is the power that story has over them. Children are compelled by a good story. Whether it's a movie, at which point, you know, the thumb goes into the mouth and the eyes get real big. Or whether it's, you know, a, a play with live action characters and the, the reactions to that play are, are visceral. We went and saw a school production of Beauty and the Beast a couple nights ago. And whenever, whenever the beast would growl, my kids would jump and they'd, you know, my, my daughter would jump literally into my lap. Okay? I love that, that reaction. So whether it's a movie or a play or even a book with good illustrations, when you hear a story, when you, when you present a story to children, they are just enamored. They are glued. They are all in. And it's a wonderful thing. Because as you know, we as adults tend to outgrow that. We become sophisticated. We become rational. We become too good for story. And those things then begin to lose their power. The idea of a prince coming to the rescue of a princess no longer moves us. The idea of a knight in shining armor coming out to slay the dragon no longer moves us. And so the very thing that will compel a child just doesn't work the same for us as adults. It loses its luster. We roll our eyes at it. We think of these things as silly or foolish. And you see, if that's true of these lesser stories, if that's true of derivative stories, then it's also true, if we have the eyes to see, for that story of stories, the gospel, the one true story. The same kind of dual reaction, the same polarization happens. And Paul tells us this. Have you ever asked, ever asked yourself, you know, why do fairy tales have such power? Why can you survey the globe and find fairy tales, and a lot of them with similar plots, in almost every culture? Why does the most basic plot line of our favorite movies always feature, you know, creation, fall, redemption? Why do we love epics, stories of heroes? Why do we long for stories that give us justice? We hate movies and stories where the bad guys get off. We want justice in the end. We want justice 
to be served. The reason is because all of these lesser stories, to some degree, find their root, find their origin in that story of stories, in the story of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That true story, that there was actually a king who came from a far kingdom, who came from heaven and came to rescue his bride. There was truly that king who left his eternal domain to come and slay the dragon and to again rescue his bride from captivity. You see, the story of the gospel is the story of the ultimate hero, the ultimate redemption, the ultimate love story, the ultimate rescue. And you see, Paul points out, though, that this story, when it's told faithfully by Christians, has the same effect that reading, you know, Green Eggs and Ham by Dr. Seuss has today. You read it to a child, they love it. Dr. Seuss is a genius. They can't get enough of Dr. Seuss. But you read that same story here to us, and we laugh it off. We roll our eyes. The same thing happens, though, with the gospel, the truest story. Some hear it, and they come alive, Some hear it and they say, ah, that's foolishness. And so what you see here in this text is you hear Paul recognizing that, but then sort of rhetorically and even, you know, tauntingly asking a city like that of Corinth, well, what are you going to do about it? What will we do with it? He takes the city of Corinth and he says, you know, with your elite Greco-Roman education, with your gymnasiums and academies packed with the latest ideas, with its marketplace featuring the latest and greatest rhetoric and philosophers, he asked them, where is the one among you who can refute this? Where is the one among you who can refute that deep down you know this story to be true? Because you see, Paul understands the Old Testament scriptures. Paul understands that in Ecclesiastes we're told that eternity is set in the heart of every man. You see here in these first verses that Paul also quotes from Isaiah. What does he say? I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. You see, he understands, he understands that earthly wisdom can only take us so far. And so he encourages his people here in Corinth, and by nature, us as well, to not be ashamed. To not be ashamed. To keep telling that old, old story. To keep sharing the gospel. Because the reactions that we will get are the reactions that that message has always gotten from the beginning of time. That some will hear it, and it'll tug on their heartstrings. And a light bulb will go off, and they'll come running to this king. They'll come running to this hero who has slayed the dragon. As Paul says, to those that has the power to save. But some will hear the story of Jesus Christ, and that same light will go off, but they'll be afraid of it. They'll run from the light. They'll hide from the light. And they'll find every possible excuse to not come And they'll write it off as foolishness. They'll write it off as folly. But in either case, what Paul's encouragement to us is 
this morning is that the reaction has always been the same. Whether it was in Corinth way back then, or whether it's in America now. And so the comfort for us then as Christians this morning is that we don't have to control the results. We don't have to control the reactions. I know how hard it is to witness to somebody, to tell your coworker what you actually believe. You can become embarrassed. You can become shy. And you're worried about how they're going to react, what they're going to think of you. And Paul says, don't worry about that. Whether it was Corinth then, whether it's America now, the reactions will always be polarizing. It's power to some, it's foolishness to others, but it's not our job to worry about that. What do we worry about? We just simply worry about being faithful to tell the story. We simply are faithful to tell that old, old story to whomever will hear, recognizing that God will take care of the rest. Recognizing that, yes, it's polarizing, but the message is also providential, which means what? There are some out there who have been ordained to salvation. There are some out there who have been ordained to think of the gospel as the power to save. They just simply need to hear the message. That's where we come in. So again, don't worry ourselves with the polarizing results. We should just worry with being faithful. So again, the question for us this morning is, who can you tell this week? Who can you take that card to? Who can you share with this week the message of the cross? It's polarizing, but it's providential. Secondly, though, in the text, we see that we have a God who is a savior, but also a stumbling block. And this is similar. We have a savior, so the message itself is polarizing but providential, and the central character of that message, Jesus Christ, plays two roles. He's a savior, but he's also a stumbling block. If you get to know me a little bit more, you'll realize that uh, I'm not a big fan of Christian bumper stickers. Uh, if you have one on your car, that's okay. You can be, okay? I'm not a big fan of Christian bumper stickers, typically because a lot of them are just cheesy, I find. A lot of them are kind of cheesy. There are some good ones, okay, but some are just cheesy, so I choose not to kind of put anything on my car. I like a Christian fish. I actually like that very much. I like the story of it, the history of it. I like that it's kind of an understated symbol, the Christian fish. But again, I don't have one on my car because I'm a terrible witness when I drive, all right? Um, If I put a fish on my car, it would do harm to the kingdom of God, all right? Um, it's probably the one place, you know, when I'm in traffic, where I want to believe in Darwin's theory of, you know, survival of the fittest, you know, ev- evolution, okay? I want to. Uh, I don't, of course, right? Um, but again, Christian bumper sticker is not really my thing. But there is one that I, I like, because it's simple, and it just says, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. But if he's the answer then what's the question, right? What is the question? And what we see here, so now moving past verse 20, moving further into the text, verses 21, let's say, into verse 25, what we see here is we see Paul addressing what would have been in his day kind of the two most pressing questions. Again, if Christ is the answer, What is the question? And we learn that the gospel is the answer to every existential human question that we offer to it. 
But that question does take different forms in different times. And so for Paul's day, he had two pressing questions before his ministry at all times. And those two pressing questions came from two different groups. As you know, Paul sort of lumps all of the world into two categories. There is the Jew, there is the the, the child or the product of Israel, and there is then the non-Jew, you know, citizen of the Roman Empire, you know, this Greco-Roman person, what we call a Gentile. And so there was Jews and there were Gentiles. But the questions they offered to Paul and the, the questions they brought to the gospel were different. They were different. So, so follow me for a minute. So for the Jew, the overarching question was, how could the Messiah be crucified? How could Jesus, whom Paul claims is the anointed one, whom Paul claims is the Messiah, how could that Messiah be crucified? Doesn't his very crucifixion nullify any claim he has to be sent by God? Wasn't that a curse? So how could the Messiah be a crucified Messiah? For the Gentile, though, specifically that educated, you know, Greco-Roman person, the question for them was, how could God become a man? How could God become a man at all? Forget where he ends up on the cross. How could God become man at all? So in other words, the Jew struggled with the crucifixion, and the Gentile, they struggled with the incarnation. How could God become a man? So again, follow me a little further. The Jew, as we've been, you know, we've heard a lot, and it's been well attested, that the child of Israel when traditionally looking for the anointed one, when looking for the Messiah, was looking for someone who came with traditional power. They wanted that king that would come and conquer the Romans. They wanted that king that would come and knock heads together and not sit on a cross, my goodness, with a crown of thorns, but sit on a throne, sit on an empire, to come riding on a war horse, and not a donkey. And so while the miracles and the teaching of Jesus Christ were admittedly impressive, and those things worked to sway a good number of Israelites to faith, there was that one glaring red flag, that one glaring stumbling block, that one glaring hurdle that remained, and it was his death on a cross. Now for the Gentile, though, again, the non-Jew, They had no notions of a Messiah. They had no notions of the Old Testament scriptures, no notions really of Israel that had to be overcome. Their concern, though, their hurdle was more generic. Again, how could God, how could the idea of God, how could he enter into creation? How could he become a man? How could God become so undignified? Because you see, in that worldview, in the Greco-Roman worldview, worldview, the gods were wholly other. They were wholly other. And if they wanted to meddle in the affairs of humanity, it would be to take things. They would come and take gifts from men. They would come and take women for themselves. So the gods lived and did their own thing, and if they ever came to involve themselves at all in creation, it wasn't to, to give 
It was to get. It was to exert their power and their authority and to take things from humanity. And beyond that even, the spiritual world where the gods dwelled was separate. And so as you might know, in Greek philosophy, a lot of time and effort and energy is spent trying to leave the body, trying to forsake the body, that you might attain to the true realities of what is spiritual and ethereal. So there was a sharp divide then between what happens on earth and what happens in the spiritual realm. And so again, this guy, Jesus Christ, he might have been impressive at times. He might have checked some of their boxes of being a wise teacher, being an intelligent man. But the stumbling block for them was his claim at all to be God in the flesh. So what's interesting is that for the Greco-Roman person, their hang-up was that Christ was human. Isn't that interesting? For us today, the problem is that Christ claims to be God. For the Greco-Roman, their hurdle, they, they believed in the gods, their hurdle was that this God became a man. That he would, he would undignify himself. That he would come down and take on human flesh, which is so gross and so frail and must be avoided and must, we must flee from. But the common factor in both of these hurdles, the common factor in both of these questions is one thing. And you see Paul identify it in these verses. The one thing, though, that brought these two questions together, these two hurdles together, the common stumbling block they had when it came to Jesus Christ was this perception of weakness. This perception of weakness. Again, the crucifixion for the Jew was the ultimate weakness. Could anything worse happen to him? Could there have been a worse ending? But again, we have to see it through the, the lens of the gospel. The weakness of God in that moment was actually what? It was the strength of God to save. The weakness of God going to the cross was actually the strength of God to save. For in his dying, he brought life. In his defeat, he brought victory. He had come to crush the enemy. But it was a greater enemy, that of sin and death. And this Jesus Christ comes in weakness. He comes and subjects himself to the devil's greatest weapon, but then absorbs it into himself and overcomes it. So you see, that weakness that we see it as is actually the strength of God to save. And again, the incarnation for the Gentile, it seems to be weakness. How would the gods come and, and, and involve themselves with lowly man? Could Jesus be any less godlike? But again, that weakness of God is actually the strength to save. Because in God coming down and involving self in the frailties of human flesh, what was he doing? He was now giving us a pathway to God. He came and became one of us that we now might become like him. There was a saying in the early church, and don't, don't, don't mishear it because it might make you uncomfortable at first, but in the early church there was a saying that uh, God became man that man might become God. God became man, that man might become God. Again, not God with a capital G. We're not, we're, not, we're not equal with God. But Christ came down to us. He involved himself in human affairs that we might now 
be taken back to God, that we might not have a pathway back to God. And so you fast forward though to today, and isn't it amazing that the same stumbling block is present for our world today? And what is that stumbling block? It's the weakness of the message. The weakness of the message. Think about that. When you present Christianity to the world, they don't view it as strength. They view it as weakness. Weakness. Oh, you need a crutch to lean on. You're not strong enough to make it on your own. You can't handle the world and all of its problems, so you've got to have that crutch of religion, right? It's the opiate for the masses. It's what we just believe to, to delude ourselves. We believe it to get us through hard times because we can't handle the world on its own. You see, the message today is still painted as weakness, as weakness. The cross is seen as some kind of, you know, cruel device used by God to punish his own son. No, it's not cruel. It's the ultimate kindness that's liberating his children forevermore. Or we see the gospel again as just for weak and needy people, and yet no, in admitting our weakness, we find the strength of salvation. So again, we have this message, which is polarizing, but providential. And at the center of that message, we have a Savior. A Savior, but one who is also a stumbling block. And then finally, and lastly, we have an identity that is humbling. And this all now flows into the end of the text. If you look in verse 26 and following, verses 26 through 31, we see now the identity of those who follow after this Christ, the identity of those who follow after this polarizing Savior. And it's fitting then that Paul highlights something. That if people take exception to the gospel itself, and if people take exception to the main character of the story, which is Jesus Christ, shouldn't it be fitting then that his followers are also a source of controversy? Isn't that fitting? What does, Paul, what does Paul point out here? Look at verse 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised to bring to nothing things that are. For what purpose? that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, Paul kind of jabs us here. And he says, I hate to break it to you, but, you know, as a Christian, you're starting to believe your own press. You're starting to think that if this message is polarizing but providential, and some reject it but some accept it, then those of us who have accepted the message, we must be pretty, pretty hot stuff, right? We're the ones with the eyes to see. We're the ones with the ears to hear. We must be doing pretty good. We're, we're Christians. But Paul says, but wait a second. But why did God call you? Have you asked yourself that? Why did God call me? Was it because we were the best? Was it because we were the strongest? Was it because we were the most qualified, the most polished, 
that God is lucky to have us, we are gracing him with our presence, Paul says, ah, sorry, it's actually the opposite. It's the opposite. God shows the lowly things in the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things in the world to shame the strong. You see, the only qualification we have, the only thing we can do to pat ourselves on the back because we're Christians is that we're the ones actually silly enough to admit our need for a savior. We're the ones who have the self-awareness enough, if you will, to realize we don't have it all together. We're not making it. We're not strong. We're not polished. We are in need of a God to do those things for us. We are in need of a God to rescue us. And again, I think that's so instructive for us today in America because we have this tendency to be enamored by, you know, celebrity and by pizzazz. And we get so excited when someone, you know, professes Christ and they happen to be an athlete or, or an actor. And again, that's fine and well, but it's as if we're looking for finally someone who will validate us. Someone who will say the same things we say, but, but has a, a better platform or, or more prestige. And again, those are all fine and well if that happens, but Paul says, that's not where your hope lies. Your hope doesn't lie in our strength. Our hope doesn't lie in our qualifications. Our hope lies in the fact that we're lacking a lot of those things. But God called us and loved us anyway. A few years ago, Ted Turner, and I'll close with this, Ted Turner, uh, that great television mogul, you know, TBS and owned the Atlanta Braves for a time, all that kind of thing. In an interview, he said, Christianity is a religion for losers. Christianity is a religion for losers. And I understand, but it was funny how the reaction of the church was so visceral. How could he say that? How could he say that about us? But in reality, what Ted didn't realize was that he was actually levying a great compliment. It wasn't an insult, although he meant it to be. It was a compliment. Yes, Christianity is a religion for losers. You know why? Because Christ, by all worldly standards, lost. By all metrics, Christ lost. He failed by earthly standards. He was nailed to a tree, and he died. But in his loss, he won, because he rose again, and he redeemed the world to himself. So that all who are now called to follow after him, we also lose because in identifying with that crucified Savior, we're saying, I need that. I need his perfect life. I need his atoning death. I need his resurrection. Because left to myself, I'm a mess. And I need him to make me regenerated. I need him to give me new life. And you see, that message is the silver bullet. That's the only message we have to offer to the world. That's it. That's it. The world has everything else they're looking for, or so they think. But there is this great refreshment. There's this great freedom in saying, here we are, the church. We don't have it all together. We're not perfect. But we have that source of living water, Jesus Christ. And for all who come and drink from that well, they will never thirst. So that's who we are, and that's the hope we have to offer a world 
that so desperately needs it. Let's pray together. Oh God, your word is so deep, so complex, so rich, and so much more could be said, or perhaps even too much was said. Either way, Lord, we pray that you would take what we've heard and that you would apply it to our hearts and lives. God, we pray that if, any, if anything I said was off course, that we would forget that and that we'd only cling to that which you'd have us to cling to. And so, Lord, we thank you, though, for your word. We thank you for the gift that it is in our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would now empower us, now that we've heard your word, to go out and not just be hearers, but be doers. To be people who don't have it all together. Who don't feel the pressure to be perfect. But recognize that we are just ambassadors. We are messengers of that perfect one. We are vessels to go out and proclaim to the world a salvation that has been accomplished in and through Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for that, Lord. We ask your blessing in his name, in his name alone. Amen.